amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. You are now entering Odyssey Station. Please remain seated until docking is complete. Odyssey, dare to wonder. You know, last night were the Writers Guild Awards. All right. Anyway, the winners last night were uh, in the original category, Promising Young Woman, which we'll talk about during the show. And the adapted screenplay was Borat's subsequent movie film. I thought that was all improvised. That's one question about it. I mean, I literally don't know how I got to the age I am before finding out that apparently all sequels are automatically adapted screenplays. Really? Yeah, Ah. because it's based on characters previously created. Oh. Yeah, it's three things. It proves that one... Anything, any sequel is going to fall into the adapted screenplay category and shows you how rarely sequels are in the award conversation anyway. Right. That I never knew this. Um, Two, that, yeah, apparently the improvisation and the quality of that uh, goes towards the writing. The writing. And even if, wouldn't we say the editor should therefore deserve a uh, a nomination in the screen? The Writers Guild? Well, yeah, I mean, they're probably not in the Writers Guild, you're right, but, um, but I mean, they're part of the writing team, apparently, right? If they're editing huh? improv to work. Well, that's a good point. And, and then the third thing it, it shows is just what an aggressively mediocre year for movies it was. And now... Your Chill Pack Hollywood Hour with Dean Haglund and Phil Lairness. Welcome to your Chill Pack Hollywood Hour for our first show of springtime. Oh! I am Phil Larness in Los Angeles and coming at us from Detroit, Michigan, Motown. It's the Motor City Madman, Dean Haglund. Dean, has spring sprung? Look at the sun is shining, crocuses and snowbells, snowdrops. What the hell are those little tiny white things that come poking through the snow? Their first flowers of spring, they're already up. Oh, my God. Daffodils, the tulips, they're already they're already coming through the soil up here. 
That is the first usage of crocus outside a, a Frank Sinatra recording uh, <laughs> that I have ever enjoyed in my life. So congratulations. I mean, wow, that's obscure. I'm going to say. Did, did we not have an hour to fill? I would say rest on your laurels right there, my friend. <laughs> really? That's the zenith of this whole show? We had such a fun show last week when we were visited by uh, two longtime friends of the show, Mark Bennett and John Lawler. Yes, what fun. We learned so much, including your hatred of uh, Oak Island. Celebrity Deaths. Roger Mudd, Dean, was a uh, broadcast journalist who hosted Meet the Press and co-anchored the NBC Nightly News died at his home in McLean, Virginia, of complications from kidney failure at the age of 93. Oh. Uh, were you a Roger Mudd fan? I don't think I was. I think that was off my radar. I was watching Canadian news back then. That's true. I mean, his national career started at CBS in 1961 as the weekend anchor for CBS Evening News, uh, which was, of course, during the week, hosted by Walter Cronkite. And uh, he would occasionally substitute for Cronkite during the weeknight programs. But he left CBS in 1980 when he did not get the weeknight anchor spot, losing out to Dan Rather. And, wow. he, and he moved to NBC News, where he was co-anchor of the NBC Nightly News, American Almanac, 1986, as well as the aforementioned Meet the Press. And in later years, he became a, a correspondent for the McNeil Lehrer News Hour and a primary anchor for the History Channel. Uh, anyway, why I was, and this sounds terrible, excited to read about his death was not because I'm glad that he's dead. I liked uh, Roger Mudd, but because I had just been reading about him in uh, the book by Sarah Vowell, Assassination Vacation. Oh, what's the connection there, I wonder? Because his distant cousin was Dr. Mudd, the doctor who was accused and found guilty of conspiracy in the assassination of President Lincoln, the doctor that that who treated um, uh, John, John Wilkes Booth. Right, um, which get the phrase, your name is Mudd. Your name is Mudd, exactly. And the whole family for many generations has been trying to clear his name and uh, except for Roger Mudd, who always <laughs> was very much on record saying, no, the, the, the man was very guilty. <laughs> um, wow, that didn't help. Thanks. Uh, Thanks, grandkid. I mean, there was a book uh, countering the family's uh, attempt to, uh, I don't know, save the name of their ancestor. Uh, the book was called His Name is Still Mud. Um, <laughs> and uh, I particularly got a kick out of a uh, curmudgeonly chapter titled The Good Doctor. And uh, in it, the author, Edward Steers, uh, turns his attention to Mud and the family's Hippocratic Oath alibi. Oh, right. Yes. Right. My life, regardless. Right. They he couldn't have turned down and refused. In the argument uh, against the Hippocratic Oath alibi, Steers cites the testimony of ones uh, of one of Mud's former slaves at the conspiracy trial. The slave testified that once. 
when he was uh, questioning Mud's orders, Mud shot him, hoping to teach him a lesson about picking up his pace. So you take a shot at him. M- shoot him. Not at him. Shoot him. Many, many of the other slaves testified that they were often whipped by mud. So in the book, by any other standard, according to Steers, owning slaves and whipping and shooting them seems at variance with the ideals of the Hippocratic Oath. <laughs> uh, that's pretty uh, That's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I can see that being a, uh, an accusatorial finger. But you do understand why so many of his uh, descendants would uh, spend a great deal of time and no doubt money uh, trying to clear their distant uh, ancestor's name. Because after all, the legendary broadcaster Roger Mudd has died and we've spent most of our time talking about him actually talking about the assassination of Lincoln. Henry Darrow was an actor who had high-profile roles in TV shows including The High Chaparral, Santa Barbara, and Zorro. And he died uh, at his home in Wilmington, North Carolina at the age of 87. His first major role was on High Chaparral. He played Manolito, the brother of Victoria Cannon, who was played by Linda Crystal. In 89, he began a three-year run on Santa Barbara, and he won a Daytime Emmy Award for his performance. Uh, But he was a real groundbreaker. He had numerous other TV appearances, including Gunsmoke, Night Gallery, Mod Squad, Wonder Woman, Star Trek The Next Generation, The Golden Girls, on and on and on and on. One of these guys, again, who was able to have a career largely based on guest starring on shows. Right. Uh, And you would and you would see him and you'd go, I know that guy. That guy's good, right? Like that class of working actor. Um, but he was instrumental in the organization uh, that started in 1970 with Ricardo Montalban as president, Nosotros, meaning oh. us. And, us. and uh, Henry Darrow was the, the first vice president. And they helped... Uh, young Latino actors and actresses at a time when there were only a few Latino casting people and agents in the business. And they made really great strides for their membership through the years. Isn't that something? Oh, well, I didn't even know that uh, organization existed. You wouldn't need to, would you, Dean? No, (laughs) I guess I wouldn't. Because Canadian Latino actors such as yourself had careers handed to them. On a platter. What? I feel like that expressed hatred towards something, and I don't even know now what supposedly, like so many people, I don't know what it is precisely I hate. I only know that I do. (laughs) Cliff Simon. uh, Yeah, you you probably uh, crossed uh, paths with this guy, rubbed shoulders with him from time to time, South African actor who played uh, the long-running villain in Stargate SG-1. Mm-hmm. Dies of a kiteboarding accident at Topanga Beach. Yes, have uh, you done kiteboarding before? No, Phil? I avoid kiteboarding accidents on Topanga Beach as if my life were to depend on it. Dean, he died at the age yes, of uh, fifty-eight. Yeah, I know. Cliff is Cliff lived the life that you dream of. He would he would uh, suddenly be in a convention in the middle of Europe somewhere. I go, hey Cliff, how are you? And then we'd hang out, laugh. He'd have stories, 
And then he said, okay, I'm going off to another convention, you know, over in Marseille in France. I'm like, what? Yeah, yeah, next weekend. Well, that's a week away. What are you going to do? Oh, I'm going to hitchhike. I'm just going to hitchhike across Europe from one convention to the next. <laughs> like, whoa, what? Hitch, and he would, and people would recognize him. Some wouldn't. He'd be charming. He could speak multiple languages. And uh, man, the you just the life, the exciting life that guy lived. That's an it, insight into you. I feel like you used to have um, a, a bit of that, uh, n- not only inclination but uh, activity as well. I remember, maybe until my mom beat it out of you, I remember one time you were going to do some kind of ride share with a stranger for some reason to like go pick up a car or something. Yeah, no, I had to drop something off in Vegas at the CES, I think it was, or something. Yeah, so I just did ride share Craigslist. And uh, with a stranger. And yeah. And I think my mom, my mom put the kibosh on that or whatever. She freaked out. She freaked out. I still went. I still had a great time. Well, now that she's dead, you can admit it. I told her that. (laughs) <laughs> that it wasn't that it wasn't happening. Uh, another thing that was kind of made him kindred to you, I would think. You know, he hosted, uh, so he had a real, a genuine interest in it. It wasn't just a gig. I don't think he his most recent hosting project was the 2020 series Into the Unknown, exploring myths and urban legends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think we talked about it from time to time, at, but it was mostly you know over a drink or two, not really getting into details. He, he seemed to have more. I would just listen to his uh, bon vivant, his kite surfing through life as he did. Oh, man. Too soon. Kite surfing through life, kite surfing into death. Possibly still kite surfing wherever he is today, for all we know, we like to think. And I do like, again, you revealed that much of your search for the truth is really just an excuse to enjoy a cocktail or two. <laughs> well, good. They coincide. What? One of my, I know, I know. Somebody actually asked the age-old question of me the other day, uh, tongue-in-cheek, apropos of a heartbreaking loss of their beloved UCSB gauchos in March Madness, how do you mend a broken heart? And I said, well, liquor helps. Um, (laughs) Norton Juster, one of my favorites, Dean, a children's author who wrote the 1961 classic, The Phantom Tollbooth. This oh. is a book I dust off from time to time every few years. Uh, maybe the best children's book ever written, um, and a good one for adults to share with their y- young folk, because it teaches uh, adults the perils of becoming stayed in our ways. Juster died at the age of 91 after complications following a stroke. Uh, at his home in Northampton, Massachusetts. He was working as an architect when he wrote his first children's book, uh, the beloved classic Phantom Tollbooth, telling the story of a bored young boy, Milo, who is thrown into adventures when a tollbooth appears in his bedroom and turns out to be a portal to fantastical lands. Oh. Uh, It was famously illustrated by Jules Pfeiffer, with whom Schuster shared a duplex. A lot of... (laughs) A lot of talent in that duplex. I'll say. The Phantom Tollbooth uh, became an influential work that's often ranked among the best novels for children. It's been adapted into a movie, a symphony, and an opera. Wow. 
And uh, what you would love, I think, is he continued working uh, while writing other children's books, including The Dot and the Line, which was adapted into an Oscar-winning short film. He continued to work as a teacher of architecture and continued to work as an architect. Wow. That would be great to commission him to do your house and then just go. And could you add some of that phantom toll booth? Oh my, like a toll booth, build in a toll booth into the facade. Oh my goodness. Uh, his 1982 book, Otter Nonsense, Otter Nonsense, was illustrated by the award-winning author and illustrator, Eric Carl. Oh, Lou Ottens was a Dutch engineer, Dean, mm-hmm. who invented What? What did he invent? A little quiz. Engineer invented. Uh, Ottens. I'm going to say he invented the uh, uh, self mending zipper. <laughs> self mending. He uh, outlived the media format he invented. Oh, uh, the uh, oh. Not the JPEG, the uh, floppy disk. He invented the cassette tape, one of the most popular music formats, among other things, of the 70s, 80s, and 90s. He died at his home in Northampton. Wait a minute. That's exactly what I wrote about Norman Juster. I've got some bad information. So we don't know why he died uh, or where. Maybe I got Norman Juster wrong. I will do an update and a correction on next week's show. I mean, the update will be that he's still dead. Anyway, Lou Ottens has died. Uh, and sadly, now, after all that, we don't have the time to rewind his fascinating life because uh, there are two more celebrity deaths we need to get to as quickly as possible. Robert Ashby was a U.S. Air Force veteran, stop me if you've heard this way too many times of late, Dean, who served as a Tuskegee Airman during World War II. He was the first black pilot ever hired by Frontier Airlines. He died at his home in Sun City at the age of 95. Man, this just kills me, the, the t- losing the Tuskegee Airmen. I mean... Yes. How many are left? There's only one or two, isn't there? I think, uh, yeah, we're probably down, certainly on one hand, I I would think. I might look into that for next week's show. Finally, before we close up the Chill Pack Morgan, quite frankly, not a moment too soon. (laughs) Uh, Another one of my favorites, Yafet Kodo. Ah, yeah, I know, right? What a great actor. I mean, when Sigourney Weaver tweeted out about working with him on Alien being a master class because of what he brought to it. Uh, and indeed, one of his most famous roles was as Engineer Parker in Alien. Uh, mm-hmm. Of course, he also played uh, the lieutenant in TV's Homicide Life on the Street. Uh, his early films include Four for Texas in 1963, which I think, wasn't that a Sinatra uh, film? It's our second Sinatra reference, if I remember correctly. Sinatra show. He was in a uh, in the Thomas Crown Affair, Steve McQueen's uh, yeah. version, nineteen sixty eight. Played Doctor Kanaga and his alter ego, Mister Big, in the nineteen seventy three Bond film Live and Let Die. So good in that. Uh, starred in the big hit TV movie Raid on Entebbe. All right. Um, winning. 
uh, an Emmy nomination for his performance as Idi Amin. Um, my personal favorite, playing Alonzo Mosley, the FBI agent in Midnight Run. Oh, yeah, right. So funny in that. Um, and, you know, uh, again, really groundbreaking. Uh, Homicide was a groundbreaking show. Um, but Alien, he, uh, it was fascinating, the affection he had for that film and its groundbreaking nature. He would, in public appearances, talk about how it was easy to forget but in 1978, when that's being made, 1979, when it comes out, um, having a woman and a black man be the final two to survive. Oh, yeah. And, and the woman survives because the black man sacrifices himself for her to survive. He's very much a hero in it. Um, right. This was not commonplace to say the least you forget about that rewatching it you know i it recently came on uh somewhere that i just sort of stopped and watched a good hour of it in the middle and to see his just uh it's not even bad it, it seems with him and harry dean stanton almost a documentary <laughs> style that the that the filming is going on with them that you you can't believe they actually have lines, particularly the the, the dinner scenes and the um, uh, and the scenes between the two of them. They the, are um, they are inhabiting their characters uh, and truly inhabiting that space. And I also credit the the fact that those sets were practical sets, right? All built out. Um, so they got to really live in that world, and then you bring it. Uh, you bring to it actors that really want to live their parts. Right, right. But anyway, before we uh, say goodbye to Yafet Kodo, I wanted to share a great story about him when he brought his son to the aforementioned Lincoln's Memorial on the Mall in Washington, D.C., to the spot where Martin Luther King gave his I Had a Dream speech. Right. A speech at which... Yafat Kodo, as a young man, was in attendance. Wow, I didn't know that. So he brings his own son, you know, decades later, to the spot where that happens. And he is approached by all these Japanese tourists, you know, like a tour group, a Japanese tour group. And they're excitedly uttering at him. He can't understand anything they're saying. It's in Japanese, except for one word that keeps popping up again and again and again in what they're saying, and that word is alien. <laughs> they knew him and loved him from the movie Alien. Isn't that fantastic? And, yeah, what a cool moment. And, I mean, it's it's maybe a little far-fetched to, to say that it's entirely the embodiment of the dream that Martin Luther King spoke of, but it's certainly a reflection of part of it, right? Yeah, yeah sort of, yeah. Um, you can extend it. He gets cast in that movie in a non-traditional heroic role at that time, and right. decades later, this group of people, uh, another c color, another culture, another background would come up 
and celebrate it at the footsteps of Lincoln. I mean, it's uh, it's super cool, and it's kind. It's it's maybe the one story of the last week I heard that gives me hope for humanity. Uh, speaking of diversity, yes, um, I'm going to do an all diversity issue uh, <laughs> of. Movie ads. If you could see me, and you kind of can see because we're doing it on Zoom today. Uh, I've got uh, I've got some uh, some ones. I'm going to give you a bonus one uh, today. We're going to run through four because I really, really, really want you to get one right. <laughs> well, no, wait a second. I got some right over the times. Right, but just I'm saying today. I oh, want today, to. Today. I want. I want you to get one right. right. Uh, okay. From the year 1986. 86, fantastic year. In the last 24 hours, she's been attacked by a paper shredder, kid- kidnapped by a phone booth, and chased by a killer. Do you know what it is yet? No. All right, let me finish with the, ta- with the copy. If she can hang on until tomorrow, she just might save a guy named Jumpin' Jack Flash. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> uh, isn't it Jumpin' Jack? It's Whoopi Goldberg in uh, in Jumpin' Jack Flash. There you go. There you go. You got that correctly. You uh, handed that one to me. I don't remember her getting kidnapped by a phone booth, but okay. I do remember enjoying that uh, film, yeah, except for the one thing the the handsome guy. They they do all these shots where they don't show his face, and then at the last moment they show his face, and somebody leaving the theater said. Oh, they should have just cut that scene with the showing the actor's face of the handsome guy. Uh, I pictured him more handsome. Am I right in remembering that it was Jonathan Price? I think it was Jonathan Price. Okay. No, All right. Also from 1986, the good news. Detectives Ray Hughes and Danny Costanzo are going to retire in 30 days. The bad news. Every crook in Chicago wants to take one last shot at them. <laughs> no problem. No problem. <laughs> dot dot dot. So Ray Hughes. So this isn't. Um, uh, it's not Lethal Weapon. You're listening to Odyssey. I'm as busy as a spider spinning daydreams. I'm as giddy as a baby on a swing. I haven't seen a crocus or a rosebud or a robin on the wing. Suli and I, in 1985, I think it was, went to see Billy Crystal in concert at the Center for the Performing Arts in San Jose. Right. Uh, Because the Center for the Performing Arts was celebrating its crystal anniversary. Uh, I kid you not. That's why Billy Crystal was performing. Uh, We waited backstage for him. Uh, You know, we're young kids uh, and we both have fallen in love with comedy. And uh, we hang out uh, waiting for him and he talks to us afterwards. And the question we both uh, are dying to know is when is this particular movie coming out? (laughs) Oh, so Billy Crystal's a cop in Chicago? He's Ray Hughes? I think he's Danny Costanzo. Oh, ooh. So it's a comedy duo, Billy Crystal. Oh. You mentioned Lethal Weapon. I mentioned the word diversity. All right. So uh, it's him and uh, Eddie Murphy. Uh, no, Richard Pryor. Oh, I got nothing. Gregory Hines. Damn it. 
Oh, that Gregory Hines cop movie with the, oh yeah, what was that called? Gregory Hines tap dancer extraordinaire and uh, running scared. Running scared. Wow. Oh, that was the copy for running scared. That's As opposed ter- to the Gregory Hines, Mikhail Barishnikov spy movie. Spy movie. Don't kid yourself. White Knights. Okay. Uh, here we go. Dean from. 1991, and a a film that owns a little bit of Hollywood history because of one of its stars who died way too young. One's a warrior, one's a wise guy. They're two L.A. cops going after a gang of Japanese drug lords (laughs) feet first. Feet first? Probably there's some martial arts involved, Dean. Oh, I see feet first, as in uh, Feats of Fury. Is it called Feats of Fury? That's a good title. No, uh, this stars Dolph Lundgren. Oh, so post-Rocky Dolph Lundgren, 91. Uh, but this is not Universal Soldier, because that's 95. The other star, uh, the one I was referencing, Brandon Lee. It was oh. his first starring role. Before The Crow. And then, of course, he would die making The Crow. And he's the thing that recommends the movie. His charisma kind of uh, pops off the screen, his humor, his easy way with comedy. Uh, and, of course, he had a certain martial arts b- bona fide built in to hey. being named Brandon Lee. The name of the movie was Showdown in Little Tokyo. Do not watch it, though, because it is... Exactly the kind of movie, sadly, that uh, embraces so many stereotypes that we might finally be acknowledging cause problems and lead to objectification and stereotyping and violence. One last one, Dean. Surf's up. Time to save the world. Oh, this is point break. No way around it. Come on. Uh, Remember, it's diversity. Was there a movie whiter than point break? I ask you. (laughs) Other than that, it's Buckaroo Banzai in the 23rd century. But here's uh, here's here's your top build cast of names above the title. Ernie Reyes, Jr. Rob Schneider. Oh, and Leslie Nielsen. Wow. So this is a uh, Broadway store SNL kind of mishmash of- from from 1993. It's Surf Ninjas. <laughs> oh my God. Surf Ninjas. You know, I do recall that coming to the theater, and I was super busy that week. So, damn it, Surf Ninjas on my list. <laughs> Anyway, the award season is in full swing, later than usual, uh, but we've got the Screen Actors Guild Awards and the Academy Awards coming up. Uh, Usually, I've already engaged in the process of trying to see all the top films, the top 30, at least, films according to critics, by the end of January, by the time we traditionally have done a top 10 show. And this year, I'm kind of behind that, but also throw into the mix this year that Lily decides it would be really nice to see all the nominated television work uh, for the Screen Actors Guild, this really exponentially increases the amount of viewing one has. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Uh, I am thankful SAG sent me the Ted Lasso first season. Oh, thank goodness. Have you seen that? Yes, I binge watched the whole thing at once. 
And uh, how many times? Uh, well, that's funny you should ask because I forgot where I left off and didn't have a problem realizing I watched that episode again. So, it's, so yeah, it's, it was. It's so good, isn't it? It's straight ahead. It is. It is a line drive right down center field. There's no oddities and there's no. Oh, I wouldn't have done that, or that's a weird choice. Oh yes. The- no, it's like, it's like a, a. There's there's no uh, chuff. There's no fat to trim off. Everything's there. So and the, it's- the writing is so good. The writing, you know, this is one of those cases where you, uh, it doesn't mean that the script's the most important thing. But as we know, if it isn't working on the page, if the if if the architecture isn't there, that's very tough. Not impossible, but very tough to fix later on because right. uh, you always want to ride the horse in the direction it's going. The the writing. Um, understandably sweeps the uh, the Writers Guild Awards last night for for comedy television, com- you know, comedy episodics. Um, but the casting, spot casting. on, everybody understands the tone of this. That's piece. very, very interesting because you think, oh, you're going to have a very diverse cast. That tone, that tone actually feels more like something I would see on BBC than anything on uh, a U.S. show. So it has a very much uh, tone uh, similar to the um, the uh, girls at the uh, boarding at the school during the Troubles in Ireland. What was that one called? The Dairy Girls? The Dairy Girls? I don't know. <laughs> it's shockingly funny. But yeah, tonally, everybody is on the same page, which is really hard to do, right? One of the shows that you know I I enjoyed uh, much of the first season. It was a little bit hit and miss. Uh, it wasn't all of a piece, and yet you know I enjoyed it largely on the strength of the work by Christina Applegate and Linda Cardellini. It was dead to me, and oh. I was really looking forward to um, season two especially when I learned that now both Christina Applegate and Linda Cardellini are getting nominated for Best Lead uh, Performance by an Actress everywhere, because in season one, Linda Cardellini was very much the supporting person. And I thought, oh, well, this is interesting. Are they developing parallel storylines that might mirror each other in fascinating ways, and then they cross over with each other through their friendship? Um, that's an intriguing structural approach to take. Yeah. Uh, and um, I'm four episodes in, and I've been aware that certain things are funny, though I have not laughed at them. Mm. Because it's been nothing but an exercise now in imposing plot developments on the characters in order to keep it going. And nothing kills a tone faster than that. Right. Uh, yes. Writing it, plot over character. It's so nice that the Ted Lasso gang apparently knew from the get-go if they were fortunate enough for this to land, how far they wanted to go and what the story was they wanted to tell. They know. We certainly end uh, season one feeling like it is the end of act one. Not yeah. feeling like, okay, how are they going to continue this? He says something in the first episode, he's going to be, and he says, oh, is the team going to be so mad when I win them over? And then at the end, it's like, 
Well, we can win it all next year, you know? So there's, there's the character tells has a certain uh, confidence that can, can well, like, hook the whole show on it. And, and he does win them over, but they don't, that doesn't mean they win everything. And, and no. in fact, winning people over often has to do with helping people accept loss. And, yeah. and, and I, I'm not referencing uh, even predominantly the, the games being played out on the, on the pitch, right? I mean, right. it is a show in many ways that's about loss and letting go. Great. Yeah, letting go. And so anyway, Dead to Me, season two, such a, 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 a uh, disappointment. I asked our friend Mark Hershon whether I needed to continue, and he said, look, there are fun twists. And that made part of me want to curl up and die. The <laughs> phrase fun twists now, I find that to be a contradiction in terms. Fun, there fun. are no fun twists. There are just twists. And there's nothing yeah. fun about them. There's cleverness, and uh, that drives me nuts. So I said to him, I feel like I'm going to dedicate my life in my work to uh, painful, unendurable twists. <laughs> and then... I thought about Carl Rove, I Love You and the Lady Killers, and maybe I've just described where I've been for the better part of a decade or more anyway, is specializing in painful, unendurable twists. Uh, The other show I'm immersing myself in, and blissfully, it is a show that you can come to season by season. You can drop in anywhere, I have learned, because it does follow, each season follows a set of time through history, uh, but jumps forward many years in histories and indeed recasts its roles appropriately. And I'm talking about The Crown. Oh, yes. For the first time I'm watching The Crown, starting with season four, I, uh, Lily wanted to do this. I was interested in doing it because, again, of the awards consideration being bestowed upon Gillian Anderson. Yes, who, to see Margaret Thatcher. I had watched season one, but I actually enjoyed the – there was some standalone episodes that stood out for me in the Winston Churchill by John Lithgow, uh, getting his portrait painted, for instance. Right, I remember his, that. I remember yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. So these episodes, as opposed to the continual unfurling of the royal family and the history of it, less so. So I I keep looking for uh, individual episodes within each season that just uh, highlight writing, directing, acting all coming together. Well, the the, uh, Gillian Anderson episodes as Margaret Thatcher are really uh, highly recommended. Um, her work spectacular. I mean, look, I even literally forget I'm watching Gillian Anderson. You know, it, we're, we're we're long since beyond uh, being surprised at the greatness of Gillian Anderson. Of course, uh, that said, her greatness still sometimes surprises um, mm-hmm. because she is so interested in going places she hasn't gone before. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm not interested in in real life or in watching television is the soap opera of the royal family. Right. And I think he really, the writer, uh, Peter went Morgan, years. Peter Morgan. He has to walk that tightrope between appeasing the soap opera royal watchers and then finding great stories within individual historic moments uh, of what potentially went on in those in intimate, intimate conversations, right? 
you're dead on about royal watchers. Um, I find that the people I know who are most interested in the royal family in real life are the most interested in this show. <laughs> right? It's, it's yeah. not necessarily a one-to-one exchange, uh, but I have a hard time believing if you are interested in the real-life drama of the royal family, you wouldn't like The Crown. But yep. I will say that this season of The Crown, I actually have understood the appeal of a royal family, of being a royal family watcher, and I'll go one step further, the significance and relevancy of having a royal family. Well, let us dive into that. What is the potential significant? Because our friends Natalie Haverstock thinks uh, the royals are a drain on the taxpayers' money. I would argue that there is a way in which the more you are disinclined to a traditional nuclear family or larger, the more disinclined you are to care about the royal family. Oh, um, and mm-hmm. and it's not just because oh I have a big family I like to watch therefore family dramas unfold either because I want to learn from them I want to be inspired by them I want to laugh at them I want to feel better about myself there's so many things that can go on to why people like soap operas I mean let's face it Dallas Falcon Crest Dynasty those were fictional American royal families. Being depicted, and it was very, very popular. But the royal family, I suddenly realized as an institution, is about embodying and displaying what the ideal form of service is on the part of a family. Right. Namely... It's supposed to be uh, an emphasis on community first, then family, then the individual. And in America, so much is about individual, then family going outwards. We, we could talk, but who wants to, about whether one is more healthy or makes more sense than the other? As with all things, it's contextual. Honestly, right. there are times in which... Uh, during a blitz, let's say, in World War II, having an attitude of community first, then family, then individual, really helps you get through something like the blitz. There are times when having a me first, then family, then community attitude, I don't know, uh, disinclines us from wearing masks to protect our fellow uh, citizens. So there's that, the way that embodies it. But suddenly, as I'm watching a scene where Jillian, as Margaret Thatcher, is coming in, kneeling before the queen, and the queen is inviting her in her name to form a government, to form a cabinet. And I'm thinking, this is ridiculous. See, this is why people like me People like Natalie, right, and John probably think this is this is ludicrous. The royal family is just costing the taxpayer so much money, and they don't have any power. This prime minister who's curtsying before the queen could push through legislation disbanding the royal family, right, stripping them of their lands and their powers, and yet has to curtsy and and do this. The royal family has no intrinsic power. And yet, the elected officials with the power 
are granting it to her, and suddenly it was a penny drop for me, which is, of course, that's the relevancy. In fact, more than ever before throughout history when the royal family did have political power, now they have relevancy, and the relevancy lies in the very fact that they don't have power, and yet the prime minister has to kneel before her, just as the prime minister ought to have to kneel before the head of every household, because the prime minister works for every household, not the other way around. I see, and so that's a symbolic household. Our leaders, our elected leaders work for us. So that makes a lot of sense. The royal family might be more relevant than ever, uh, even as they have less, quote-unquote, power than ever, because power and relevancy often um, aspired to as meaning the same thing. They are not the same thing at all. not the same thing. Yes, it's an it's a interesting thing to tease apart, actually, because uh, once you have... Yes, because power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But relevancy, uh, you always strive to be relevant. So, so you actually have to achieve that, and you can't achieve that through corruption to be relevant. That actually weakens your relevancy. So, relevancy. so many, so many film awards that I want to uh, touch upon before we okay. go. Um, Staying with the SAG Awards, you know my favorite award, of course, is the Outstanding Performance by a Stunt Ensemble in a Motion Picture. And I'm not really joking it because it's an award I feel we authored. I feel like we invented it because year after year, I would say, how is there no stunt award? And the Academy Awards have not adopted this. That's uh, right. Yet, but Screen Actors Guild did the nominees for Outstanding Performance by a Stunt Ensemble. Okay. Spike Lee's The Five Bloods. Disney's Mulan, the Western News of the World with Tom Hanks, Wonder Woman 1984, the Trial of the Chicago 7, the stunt work in the Trial of the Chicago 7 because of the the riots. The riots look pretty authentic, I must say. All right, well, maybe then if that's what we're looking for, then, but I mean, to have the Trial of the Chicago 7 and Wonder Woman 84 in the same category seems really odd. And to have an award called Stunt Ensemble Work and not nominate Tenet, Christopher Nolan's Tenet, why have that award at that point? Good question. Well, uh, you know, they're recognizing you also have to submit your film for the nomination, don't you? I mean, they're not. I don't know. I don't know. But why bother? I mean, really, if you're if you're overlooking that, um, you know, before we let go of this, I saw the Wonder Woman 84. Um, and uh, I know you did not uh, like this. It's inspired to me the idea of maybe we should do a show sometime of best and worst superhero movies. Instead of a top 10 show, it's a top five, each of our top five best superhero movies and top five worst superhero movies. Spoiler alert, Wonder Woman 1984 would get a lot of play from me. Um <laughs> It's, For best and worst? It's easily the worst film of 2020. A contender already, an early contender for a worst of the decade list. Um, <laughs> so here's how this movie comes about, right? Uh, we know that they want to have a sequel because the first one's a big hit. So, uh, right. But you know that it's a marketing department that uh, someone in that department says, I wish we hadn't killed Chris Pine's character. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. 
And then in the story department, they said, wow, how can we make their wish come true? That's it. That's our story. Making wishes come true. I know. You know, I I did watch, by the way, uh, Zack Snyder's Justice League. Oh, you did? You had 234 minutes lying around? Uh, My favorite headline uh, was, I think, from Variety, uh, still a mess, now long. Um, (laughs) But it is of a piece. I will give this to Zack. Do I think it's a terrible movie? Yes. But is it the movie that he wanted to make? Yes, it is. Is it of a piece? Yes, it is. It is hmm. a, a singular expression. And do I understand why you wanted to make it? Yes, I do. So I can get behind that in a way that I never could get behind, obviously, the Joss Whedon theatrically released version, which kind of, I think a lot of people, it makes them hate Joss Whedon more. And gosh yeah. knows, uh, again, I prefer my superhero movies directed by non-sexual predators. But um, I mean, I love that we're not taking it out on the, the studio that right. thought, hey, we could wait for Zack Snyder to get over the death of his daughter and come back and finish this, or we could bring someone in to m- change it so that it doesn't feel like one piece at all, and we could release a huge pile of dung on the viewing public and make a lot of money now, and then years later still go back and make more money off releasing the original. Um, <laughs> anyway, I would I bring this up. I illustrate this just uh, as a point of how much Wonder Woman 1984 doesn't work. Proof that it uh, doesn't work and its storyline of making wishes come true is that I still live in a world where people don't become adults and don't let go of childish things and care about things like Zack Snyder's Justice League. So clearly my wish didn't come true. Anyway, speaking about the Academy Award nominations. Yes. <laughs> in past years, right, controversies about lack of gender and racial diversity led to changes in both the Academy membership and huh? uh, in the movies and artists nominated, and even in who won Oscars. Right. So I'm wondering what effect the recent wave of violence against the Asian American Pacific Islander community will have on this year's. Awards. Chloe Zhao and Nomadland were already the front runners, but I find it really hard to believe that anybody would vote against Chloe Zhao now. Right. Right. Now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you're right because it's uh, all all voting and all movies are in context of the societal uh, issues and changes going on around them. Right. You know, I do hope that uh, obviously. Uh, Chloe Zhao wins. I do think uh, she has a chance, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to be one of the all-time great filmmakers. Um, the question is, will she still be great after her turn at a Marvel movie? The Eternals comes out this year. Uh, superhero movies do have a way of ruining their directors, including Christopher Nolan, uh, who has never been. Uh, as great as he was promising before the Batman movies. And Uh uh, despite how much people like me liked Inception the first time they saw it, um, the intermittently stellar interstellar. I mean, after all, if he was great, and I know you love him, but you have steadfastly refused to watch Tenet, so how great is he? I need five hours. I need 234 minutes for the Zack Snyder thing and five hours for Tenet. I just got to, you know, it's a matter of scheduling. Maybe the Oscar nominations don't matter because it was a weak year. It was a pandemic year. But boy, so many of the Best Picture nominees, there's eight, 
right? And of those, I've yet to see Sound of Metal starring the ter- terrific Riz Ahmed, who I love. But of the others, four are aggressively mediocre or flawed movies. Mank, Trial of the Chicago 7, Promising Young Women are all, women are all really mediocre. And mm. Judas and the Black Messiah, as discussed before, is so flawed, it didn't even make top 10 critic lists. Of course, one of the two best films, according to critics, of the year uh, was First Cow, uh, not even nominated, and its director, Kelly Reichardt, who was not nominated, even though she is the best director working in film today. So one can ask again, is this even relevant? Uh, Does it matter? Does it matter in a pandemic year? But I come back to, you know, seeing certain artists rewarded, seeing a Chloe Zhao rewarded, especially right now, maybe there is relevance in that. Like the royal family, you come full circle. I am concerned, on the other hand, that because of what's going on, there will be a certain backlash, uh, and certain works won't be necessarily rewarded because of that backlash. For example, do we think the Academy will be prone to honor an old white man? And if they don't, does that mean Anthony Hopkins does not win for a performance in the terrific The Father that, quite frankly, is the best work of his entire career. This is him, uh, Alzheimer's from his point of view kind of thing? Yeah, based on the play. And it is an extraordinary movie, and it's just such a wonderful performance. And I know you love Anthony Hopkins. Yes. And uh, I uh, just could not believe how, let's say in the tail end of his career, he's given the best work he's ever done. Wow. Okay. I love it. The question is, as the voting takes place in the wake of all this, for example, he's nominated opposite Stephen Yoon uh, for Minari, a wonderful movie from Lee Isaac Chung. And uh, Stephen Yoon's a wonderful actor. I loved him so much in Burning, the Korean film. Right. Um, and he uh, gives a wonderful performance that was deserving for a supporting nomination. Not for a lead nomination, which is what it got. Um, Uh, Quite frankly, the little boy in Minari is the lead character. Interesting. Um, I'm wondering if, because of what's going on, he doesn't have a really good chance to win. I would be disappointed just on the sense of, again, Hopkins gives the best performance of his career, and it also is a lead role that carries the entire film. Um, Yeah. on the other hand, I, I will say in Minari, uh, also nominated as a performer is Yo Jung Young uh, as the grandmother, and she is most deserving of all the actresses in the supporting actress category. Oh, so okay. but what nominating Yun in a supporting actor category would have also done, far from decreasing the amount of diversity on display, it would have opened up a spot for Delroy Lindo for Spike Lee's The Five Bloods, who everybody generally thinks of as maybe the biggest snub this year. All right. Belated spoiler alert. This is Odyssey. 
Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.